0: This evening I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, we'll begin reading at verse 5. This is on page 767 in the Pew Edition Bible. Jeremiah 17, beginning at verse 5, reading through verse 13, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parts places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches but not by justice. In the midst of his days they will leave him, and at his end he will be a fool. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. This is the word of the Lord, congregation, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Again, let me draw your attention to our text for this evening, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, let me offer to you another translation of that verse. Most devious is the heart. It is incurable. Who can fathom it? It's almost uttered as a, a sense of exasperation. Who can understand? Who can fathom? Who can really make sense of the way the human heart functions? So tonight I want to speak to you about, first of all, what the Bible says about the heart, and then Jeremiah speaking about the devious heart, the wicked hearts, and then the promise of the gospel. Concerning a renewed heart. Those three things tonight, very briefly. You may have heard it said before that Christianity can be described as a religion of the heart. The word heart is used over 800 times in Scripture. The Bible is a book about the human heart. Christianity. Is about the human heart. The gospel message of Jesus Christ is a message involving the human heart. There's no doubt about that. When you consider, for example, the ministry of Jesus Christ, how often he focuses not simply on outward behavior, not simply upon mental attitudes, but upon the heart. What is the heart? Boys and girls, it is not simply that that lump of tissue in your chest cavity. The heart in the Bible is what? The inner person. The truest sense of who you are. The self. The soul. It is what is immaterial in man. You can cut a person open, dissect them. You will not find the heart as it is used in the Bible. You will not find a soul. But the Bible teaches that we are infleshed souls. That's who we are. We're made in the image of God. We are not simply animals. We are not simply machines. But neither are we simply immaterial beings. We are infleshed souls. But what does the Bible teach us about those hearts? How does the Bible speak in terms of the situation of the heart in man? Is man basically a good person or basically an evil person? The tragedy of the fall into sin, that decision on the part of Adam and his wife to disobey God brought all of their descendants, all of humanity, into that sin so that we don't just commit sinful deeds, the Bible says. We have a sinful nature. The reason why people do evil things as they do is because they have a sinful nature. The heart is corrupted. Our nature is corrupted. A little over 100 years ago, The British writer G.K. Chesterton wrote a book called What's Wrong with the World Today. He was trying to understand what was happening in the world around him, why we see the proliferation of all sorts of evil trends. And we could multiply that many times over in our own day, couldn't we? Why, Why do we see all this evil around us? And one of the London papers, the London Daily News, had posed a question to its reading audience. In light of that book, what's wrong? Tell us, readers, tell us what is wrong with with the world today. And Chesterton wrote back very simply, gentlemen, I am what is wrong with the world today. Thank you very much. Something I remember Paul Tripp talking about in one of his books, or maybe it was one of his videos that I used in prison ministry, he says, how many times do you see protesters with their signs, and they're marching around, and they're holding up these signs, they're parading, and they're making a statement. How many times do you see one of those paraders saying, I am the problem, I am the problem, I am the problem? You don't see that very often, do you? It's always something out there. Always something out there. I spoke of this text this past Thursday in prison chapel. And I mentioned to the men there that one of the indications for me, at least as an instructor in prison ministry, one of the indications that I felt the Lord was beginning to open the eyes of those I was teaching was when they began to see that their problems were not, first of all, a problem out there. That the origin, the cause of their problems, their troubles could not be simply limited to what is out there. Students, and this is not the exclusive uh, thinking of people in prison, incarcerated. People act this way all the time. The reason I do bad things is because of my parents, because of my upbringing, because of my economic situation. If I wasn't so poor, I, I wouldn't resort to these sorts of things. I mean, you've seen, haven't you, in the news? People now, without any regard whatsoever, busting into stores, walking out with arms full of of various merchandise. And when confronted, they just laugh. They laugh because now these sorts of things, if they're under a certain dollar value, they won't be prosecuted. And they feel justified because they live in a time where they're being oppressed by the rich and by the powerful. So it's okay then to do those sorts of things. People try to place blame upon all sorts of things. Politics, racial inequity. There was a famous case many years ago of a man, a member of a city employee in San Francisco who shot and killed a city councilman. His defense was that he had eaten too many Twinkies before that event, and the sugar high caused him to shoot and kill a San Francisco councilman. But when students, when parishioners, when people begin to see that the problem originates here, here in the heart, then we can understand also how the remedy must be addressed. You can make all the changes you want to in society. You can work for equity, you can work for issues of social justice, but if you do not change people's hearts, you will only have limited success, if any success whatsoever. Listen for a moment to how the Bible describes the fallen condition of the human heart. And maybe you can relate to some of these. The Bible speaks of a broken heart, a faint heart, a divided heart. Think of the Apostle Paul and his struggle in Romans 7. I know I should do one thing, but I find myself doing the other. And he's describing that as someone who who has been converted to the Christian faith. A wounded heart. A stubborn heart, don't be like the mule, don't be like the horse that has to be controlled by bit and bridle, and yet some of us can be absolutely persistent in our stubbornness. Even in the face of compelling evidence to the contrary, we say, but yes, I want to do it this way. Even though I know it's destructive, even though I know it's wrong, even though I know it dishonors the Lord, I'm going to do it anyway. The Bible speaks of a perverse heart, an arrogant heart, an evil heart, a rebellious heart, an uncircumcised heart, and a foolish heart. Think of what Jesus said time and time again in his public ministry. He said, you've heard it said of old, you shall not Murder, but I tell you that if you call your brother a blockhead, you're in danger of hellfire. You've heard it said of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that if you look lustfully at a woman, you have committed adultery in your heart. Jesus' critics asked him and they asked his disciples, Why is it? That you don't go through the elaborate ceremonies of washing your hands, washing your eating utensils. What's wrong with you? Now again, it was not merely for some hygienic reason, but it was this idea of we are people of purity. And so we're going to symbolize that by washing our hands and washing our utensils. That's what makes a person holy. And you remember Jesus' response to that. He says it's not what goes into a person that defiles him, but rather it's what comes out of him, what's in his heart that makes him defiled, makes him dirty. This is the problem. And the Apostle Paul speaks elsewhere. We saw that this morning. That the problem with the unbelieving world and their rebellion, their hostility towards, towards godly living can be traced back to what? due to the hardness of their hearts. The hardness of their hearts creates confusion in their thinking, futility in their thinking, and therefore they are hostile to God. If only we had the right economic circumstances, if only we had perfect equity, if there was this perfect equality among people, then yeah, we wouldn't have any of this crime. We wouldn't have the anger, the hatred. We wouldn't have the violence. So we're told. The Bible says something quite different, doesn't it? And that's why we turn to the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah says in verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things. A devious heart, a foot-tracked Hearts is how some have described it. In other words, it leaves, it leaves impressions of its wickedness. And the Apostle John will say something very similar. First John 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves really was, That was the motivation, I think, for putting this message together some time ago already. I'm intrigued by what the Bible has to say about self-deception. Self-deception. Not other people fooling us, but we ourselves trying to convince ourselves of something we know is not true. The self-deceiving heart lies at the core of our problem. Paul talks, and we saw this morning in Ephesians 4, Paul talks about sinful desires being what? Deceitful. Promising one thing, but never being able to deliver upon that. Don't you find in your own experience, brothers and sisters, that that's the nature of your sin struggle? You have this ongoing Inner conversation. Life will get so much better. Life will be so much better. Life will go along so much more smoothly if I do this. But the Bible says this. The Bible says don't do this. But I think, I try to convince myself, I try to deceive myself into thinking that if I go along with this, life will be better for me. Wasn't that Satan's lie? the woman did God really say God's trying to hold something out from you he's trying to keep you from something God doesn't want you to enjoy life to its best well maybe maybe the serpent's right but God said don't eat of the tree and we have this conversation time and time and time again Deception is about what? Hiding, pretending, ignoring, camouflaging, and covering. It engages in a spiritual sleight of hand, like the shell game, right? If I'm just quick enough, sly enough, I'll get one past you. And we think we can get something past our own hearts. The heart is self Deceiving. You may be saying to yourself this evening, I don't, I don't really understand what you're getting at with this. Well, do people get up in the morning? Do you get up in the morning determined to do something completely, clearly contrary to God's will? Do you think a person gets up in the morning and says, you know, I'm going to cheat on my spouse today. I'm going to set about doing it. My pastoral experience is it doesn't happen that way. It's a very slow and gradual process in many cases. Just to give you one example from my own pastoral ministry over the years. You have a husband who feels sorry for himself and he's being told by someone not his spouse that his family doesn't appreciate him like they should. She's going to show the appreciation he deserves. And it's his own self-pity his own arrogance that convinces him, that deceives himself into thinking, yeah, you know what, you're right. Now, it wasn't as though this person was ignorant of what God had said about marriage, but he had convinced himself that he deserved something better. The person who cheats in his business, who embezzles, and again, you say, how does this happen to people who profess to be Christians, who are leaders in the church, elders, Sunday school teachers, cadets, gem leaders? They find themselves in these situations. How did this happen? It's that slow, methodical self-deception. If you really want to hit close to home, you can talk about pastoral failure and that was really the motivation for my own interest in this subject it's really part of what i'm working with in terms of my own doctoral studies how is it that pastors who preach the gospel who use the scriptures to minister to people who are well versed in the teaching of scripture how is it that they go off the rails That they can ruin churches. They can ruin their ministries. They ruin their families by doing the most foolish of things. Now that I'm teaching in a seminary context, that's something of great concern to me, probably more so than ever before. How do we prepare men for ministry so that they don't fall into that trap of trying to convince themselves that doing something contrary to God's will is either something acceptable or something for which they'll never get caught. Why do we do what we do? Why do we deceive ourselves? Because the heart, boys and girls, is the engine that runs everything in our life, if you want to put it that way. It is the motivational center of our lives. Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we make the choices that we do? That's really the issue that we need to talk about tonight as well. We think it allows us to live with painful truths. That's what in many cases self-deception is about. It is about trying to deal with painful things in our lives. And so we convince ourselves that these things are okay. Let me give you an example. It can apply to both those who offend God and those who are the victims of those who offend God. Think of the mob wife. The mob wife who lives in this beautiful house, wears beautiful clothes, goes to fancy restaurants, and she knows full well that your typical garbage man doesn't make that kind of money. Maybe somebody's going to dispute that with me tonight, but she's living way beyond her means. But she convinces herself that her husband, who keeps the strangest work hours, that he's a good guy. He's a normal guy with a normal job. You have a wife or a child, beaten by a husband or a father. And some of you are aware of this because you've witnessed it, where a wife or a child ends up telling themselves that the beating is justified because they deserved it. You're a bad child. You're a bad wife. You deserve this beating. Even though you know in your heart of hearts that that sort of action on the part of a husband or a father is completely out of bounds. It's abhorrent. No man should ever lay a hand on his wife or a child like that. But they convince themselves. They convince themselves. We think it offers justification for sinful attitudes and behavior i wasn't gossiping i was just sharing a prayer concern and with the days of social media we feel it's perfectly justified i can say this i can say that i can say the nastiest things i want to because i'm just concerned about the truth being told you have a person who says well yeah i hate my mother i hate my father but at least I didn't say it out loud. I'm justified then. I can, as long as I harbor it to myself, keep it to myself, I'm okay. And people often use self-deception to justify addictions. Addictions. Here's how one person put it. We use all manner of self-deceptions to protect ourselves from information that would cause us to view ourselves in ways that we do not like. We use these to avoid facing our habits of anger, impatience, criticism, and selfishness. This mechanism enables us to ignore others, commit wrongs, and feel justified or even righteous when, in fact, we ought to be facing our failures, abuses, and sins. As deception becomes a way of life, evil can be easily practiced by an increasingly dead soul that then becomes presumptuous, planning and actively participating in evil. You see this if you work with addicts because they begin using all of their energy in support of their habit. It becomes the governing force in their life. Over time, the possibility for penitence is destroyed. The soul is enslaved, and the habit ends in soul death. Peter says what? That which overcomes us then makes us a slave to it. That's what Jeremiah is talking about here. The heart is deceitful above all else. And we just skim the surface. So let me ask you, do you see any of this reflected in your own life? In your heart attitudes, where even though you know what you should be doing, you deceive yourself into thinking that you're perfectly justified in doing its opposite. Instead of loving, you hate. Instead of faithfulness, there's unfaithfulness. Instead of devotion to God, there is devotion to self. Are you living a lie? Is really the question. And in Jeremiah's day, certainly that was the issue. The prophets, time and again, have the refrain: these people, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus would quote that. The problem was not in the Old Testament or in Jesus' day that the people were not religious, they went to their services. They sat in the teaching of the synagogue. They went to the temple. They gave their money. They made a big show of it. Their prayers were elaborate and ornate. They were praised for their prayers. Some of them were. And Jesus says they, they worship with their lips. They go through all the motions, and yet their hearts are far from me. And you have to pause for a moment and ask yourself, What's the remedy? What's the remedy? If this sort of self-deception leads to spiritual enslavement, how do you get out of that? That's the question I posed Thursday night in prison. If you find yourself in that situation, brothers, I said, how do you get yourself out of that? Now, there are some who are not even aware that they're under that enslavement, but there are others who are aware, painfully aware, that they're enslaved to it. There are people in our churches who are struggling with that enslavement. Ask any pastor, ask any elder. Let's not be naive about these things, brothers and sisters. The good news is there's a remedy. Because the same prophet who spoke of the deceitfulness of the human hearts and with exasperation says, who can fathom it, is also the same prophet who spoke of a new covenant that God would make with his people. Through the work of Christ and his Holy Spirit, transformation can take place. That's why our brothers are involved in prison ministry. Because it's not through human persuasion. It's not through setting up the right environmental circumstances. It is through the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ that transformation can take place. Through repentance. Through the gift of repentance. Did you ever look at repentance as a gift of God? Repentance, being able to see more clearly what you need to be sorry about. What is repentance in the Bible? The Bible says, our catechism summarizes it. It is to be genuinely sorry for sin, not just because of its consequences, but because sin, first and foremost, is an offense to God. To hate it more and more, says the catechism. To hate it. That it is no longer something that looks appealing and attractive. And then to flee from it. Jesus uses the imagery of what? Plucking out an eye. Lopping off a hand. In other words, what are you prepared to do to fight against that temptation? Repentance, we become self-aware. Somebody once said, and maybe you have seen this in your own life, that we see most clearly when our eyes have been washed with the tears of repentance. I've seen that as a pastor. I've seen it in my own life. You no longer make the justifications for your sin, but you've been broken. You've been brought to your knees. And you see that you are in need of God's grace. You are in need of a new heart. That's why the psalmist will say, create in me a clean heart. Who may come in the presence of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Hebrews will speak of a heart that has been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Give me, says the Lord, an undivided heart, a loyal heart. And the promise in Jeremiah 31 is that God would give his people a heart of flesh. He would replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And no longer would the law simply be written on tablets of stone, like they were at Mount Sinai, but the law would be written upon the very hearts of God's people. Internalized, transformed. That's our hope. That's the good news of the gospel. So if you find yourself struggling with that self deception, if you've come to that point with yourself or maybe with someone you love and care for deeply, where you say, Who can understand, who can fathom the human heart? Bear this in mind. The promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to make us a new creation. And I leave you with these words from Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Above all else, says the writer in Proverbs, above all else, guard your hearts, for from it flow the springs of life. What does it mean to guard your heart? What should be the attitude of heart and mind Kind of behavior walks in that attitude of guarding one's heart. I think of the young man at my last pastorate who served in Afghanistan and what he told me about his reconnaissance duty walking around the base camp in Afghanistan at nights, making sure that no suicide bombers made their way into the perimeter. Put yourself in his shoes. How are you going to do that job of guarding the base camp? Think I'll take a few moments to sleep. Ah, who cares? Who cares if I take a little nap? Who cares if I wander off in my thinking? No, you're vigilant. He told me about the one time a suicide bomber made it into the base camp. He told me about what he saw and how that image will never leave his mind for the rest of his life it was a horrible horrible thing he saw bodies ripped to shreds knowing that how do you guard the perimeter every ounce of energy every ounce of energy is used in vigilance and for the christian We pray that God would give us the grace so that we would guard our hearts as well. We pray that our hearts would be devoted to the Lord in the year 2024. We pray that our children's hearts would be turned to the Lord. That it would not be said of us at Emmanuel, well, these people, they worship with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Yes, even conservative people can find themselves in that predicament. You know the motto of most conservative reformed churches? I often think it ought to be on the bulletin for some churches, but we've always done it this way. And think that becomes the rule, where that becomes an idol unto itself. But may God so change our hearts. That we say, no, it is for the glory of God. I give my heart to you, Lord. Completely, fully. I give it to you because I love you. So, Lord, keep me from self-deceit. Open my eyes. Renew my heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray tonight for my brothers and sisters here at Emmanuel URC, these dear brothers and sisters, that they would love you, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that what would mark their life as a congregation is devotion to you a genuine love for you, that they are those whose hearts are undivided. Bless us then, we pray, by your word and spirit. May the grace of Jesus Christ continue to bless and sustain us in the days to come, we pray. We ask this for Jesus' sake.